Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And here with us today is Anjali Lai, Senior Analyst and Forrester's Data Insights Team, to talk about the rise of the empowered customer. Welcome, Anjali. Thank you so much. Anjali, Forrester strongly believes that we're in the age of the customer, period in which demanding and digitally savvy customers are reshaping markets and forcing companies to change the very way they work. Does the research you did bear this out? Yes, it does. And um, over the past few years, we have been mining the uh, decades of uh, trended consumer behavioral and attitudinal data collected through our consumer technographic study to understand how exactly um, empowerment is manifesting in consumer behaviors and what exactly is driving it. And we learned from the data analysis that uh, five key shifts in consumer expectation and attitude are really driving the sense of empowerment. And it's something that we could discern very clearly in the data that feeds into what we now call the empowered customer segmentation. So Anjali, can you go through the five dimensions? Sure. So in the data, we um, learned that consumers are changing in regards to five key dimensions that, as I mentioned, set the stage for and drive customer empowerment. So the first uh, key force of change is willingness to experiment. So customers are becoming increasingly uh, comfortable with seeing new brands and products on the marketplace and experimenting with them. Um, The second force of change is device usage. So that refers to the fact that You don't have to look too far to know that consumers are relying on personal devices to accomplish their everyday tasks. Um, And this change refers to not just the amount of time that people are spending on their devices, but also the expectation they have to be able to use a personal device in order to um, uh, execute a task. That leads to the third dimension, which is what we call digital physical integration. So that refers to the fact that the gap between the customer's digital experience and physical experience is narrowing. Customers aren't necessarily um, perceiving digital and physical worlds to be separate, but more so integrated. And now they're conditioned to um, use digital tools uh, and technologies to interact with and navigate their physical world. Mm -hmm. The fourth major change is um, information savviness. So that um, refers not only to the fact that uh, individuals are consuming more content than they have in the past, but also that they are developing the skills to navigate this content and discern valuable information when uh, making a decision about a brand to product, a brand to partner with, or a product to adopt. And the fifth major change um, I'm calling self-efficacy. That essentially refers to this deep-seated motivation that customers have to be in control of their experiences and to Um, do business with the best possible, uh, most emotionally enriching brand and have that company actually validate that this is, that the customer is making the best decision. And the typical data that was used for understanding consumers, you know, either whether it's through segmentation or at the individual level has been sort of demographic and behavioral, but this data is set upon more attitudinal and sort of the expectations that the consumer carries. That's a different kind of data. Yeah, absolutely. So this data is really capturing individual motivation and uh, emotional drivers that make each segment distinct. Um, And it is often used as a strong complement to demographic and behavioral data because it helps companies identify how the appetite, uh, their customer's appetite for innovation is growing. And that in turn helps companies to identify priorities um, in terms of um, 
identifying which customers are most volatile and um, are sort of smartest about their options and likely to you know, change or take their business elsewhere, change their behavior if a better option comes along versus those that are um, less likely to evolve their behavior. So one of the, the dynamics of age of the customer is sort of the Copernicus effect, which is we sort of learn that it's not true that the customers are orbiting the brand, but increasingly the brands have to orbit the customer. So how does the data sort of suggest that those that are further in the, up in the food chain, the progressive pioneers and those, are sort of creating those, those, those environments? So we see that really manifesting particularly with the progressive pioneer segment because these individuals are um, relatively most willing to experiment. They actually are driven by um, almost this lust for novelty, right? They need to uh, feel as though they're constantly seeing variety, learning new information, experimenting with different uh, brands and products. Um, and so they um, are also driven to be in control of their experiences. So they want to feel as though they are making the decision um, and the best possible decision for themselves. So for example, we see this um, translate into behavior in the financial uh, space where progressive pioneers will not only adopt digital tools um, that are new because it's sort of the new shiny thing, but they're really harnessing a variety of different uh, digital tools in order to improve their own financial health. And so they're hyper-conscious of how brands can really help them develop um, and create more value in their own you know, world. Um, and that's the mentality that they take to a brand relationship as opposed to other groups that are maybe more receptive. So, for example, the Starbucks mobile app or paying via that app, right, would be an example of a digital tool that they would be using more frequently than, say, other segments. Right, exactly. And is there a natural movement afoot so that if you look at the progressive pioneers, those that are more most advanced and most experimental, if you will, are they teaching others those tools so that you have a natural gravitational force towards a more advanced population? Is there, you see movement in the data as we've measured over the years? Yes, we do. And um, the progressive pioneers are also the most passionate advocates and critics of a brand. So they also have, you know, they wield great power when sort of taking control of a brand's narrative and um, uh, sharing that with fellow consumers through peer review sites or through social networks. Um, and the progressive pioneer group is followed by what we call the savvy seekers who are particularly strong in that department. They are the ones who are you know, very closely following company news, reading privacy policies, um, heavily leveraging uh, peer reviews when making decisions, and also um, talking about their experiences to influence um, perceptions of others. And so this um, sort of energy or this kind of interaction that we see really generated by the progressive pioneers and the savvy seekers has a, uh, a ripple down effect. And so, as you mentioned, consumers are moving from the quote unquote less empowered groups towards the quote unquote more empowered groups. Yeah. And we've, we've had some podcasts talking about sort of the democratization of brand. Mm -hmm. And in the podcast that we did with you actually talked a little bit about how customers sort of go tribal with brands. They expect the brands to sort of fit their social or political or economic picture that they might have in their head. Mm -hmm. And so the idea would be that these segments are having an, a disproportionate, oversized impact on how the brands are trying to handle this idea that the, their brand is no longer fully in their control, but increasingly being sort of manipulated and changed and evolved based upon people that are very willing and more importantly, very skilled to do just that. Yep. Yeah, and we see in the data around the progressive pioneers, again, um, explicitly that progressive pioneers desire to be deeply engaged with the brand. So they are most likely to join 
um, a co-creation effort, for example, or be part of a community where they're constantly um, giving feedback to the brand on a particular product or based on an experience, um, and then also uh, are receptive to um, programs that incentivize them for advocacy and things like that. Um, so the, the progressive pioneers are sort of interesting because there's a little bit of a double-edged sword there, right, where they are incredibly engaged and they want to, um, you know, uh, sort of forge this uh, uh, deep connection um, with a particular brand and uh, rely on brands and really partner with brands um, in various sort of aspects in their own life. Um, so they're ready for a, I guess, broader and a deeper brand connection. But then the flip side to that is because they are so knowledgeable about their options, again, because they are the most sophisticated and the most empowered, they're also more volatile and likely to switch. Yeah, I think one of the dynamics is that there's always this implied switch costs, which is if I acquire the customer, then the customer will stay for a period of time because coming off is just too hard. It's too costly, too hard, too annoying, whatever it might be. And this segment is teaching sort of the marketplace that these switch costs are mostly fabricated that you can move into a hyper-adoption, hyper-abandonment world and have people come very quickly to experiment, but equally quickly leave. Are these attitudes consistent globally? Yeah, that's a great question. They are consistent globally. Um, we found in the data that those five dimensions I mentioned at the start um, apply in you know, every market uh, in which we study. What's interesting is when you start to compare some of the global data, you see um, curious nuances uh, in how, for example, empowered one particular um, group or one particular population is compared to another and also what that rate of change um, is and, and how that differs. So one thing I gleaned from the research is that the, the concept of an experience economy sort of proves itself out, especially in the more advanced segments, where they really value not just the efficacy of the experience or the product, but what's the emotional value that they got from that. And that seems to be a big motivation for them to stay or go. Yes. So this is definitely something we see play out, particularly in the more empowered segments. Um, progressive pioneers tend to be more sensitive to the emotional quality of a customer experience and tend to um, pay more attention to the emotional qualities of an experience when making a decision about, again, which brand to partner with or which brand to begin partnering with or to switch their business to. So for instance, um, if you were to just do a quick comparison between the progressive pioneers and the convenience conformers, which is the third segment, convenience conformers are more likely to say that they would switch to another health insurer if it offered a similar plan with a lower premium. Whereas about a fifth of U.S. progressive pioneers would switch to another health insurer if it provided better customer service. And even in uh, industries where customer choice is relatively uh, limited or you know, there isn't a whole lot of latitude um, on the customer part, um, even in those cases, progressive pioneers are more sensitive to the emotional experience. So for instance, um, more convenience conformers, uh, close to a third of convenience conformers in the U.S., say that they remain loyal to their internet service provider because it's a hassle to switch. But on the other hand, progressive pioneers are more likely to remain loyal to their internet service provider because they feel like a valued customer. So if I go back to the dimensions for a second, there seems to be a part of the story that says that a fair amount of the segments are comfortable with the role of technology in their lives. It's almost as if two years from now, people will be astounded there was an Alexa tower and expect Alexa to be sort of on their phone and on their person throughout the day. And that they're comfortable as we, as we think of things like AI and Internet of Things, they're comfortable with a, with a very powerful role technology will play in their lives. It's not just their inherent comfort with this. There seems to be now a growing expectation for that to be true. Do you see that in the data? 
Yeah, there's definitely a growing expectation. And it's also a sense that customers are becoming conditioned to um, not only engage with, but also desire these kind of experiences. The key to uh, remember in that case is that uh, because empowered customers are characterized by unique motivations, the smartest companies that win empowered customers um, through these types of technologies and experiences are the ones that play to those distinct emotions. So for instance, the progressive pioneer would be one that um, needs to feel in control at the end of the day. And oftentimes we found uh, in the data that when a progressive pioneer feels as though he is losing control, he will immediately stop or change his behavior and opt for another um, channel of interaction. So the key in that case is to create some sort of dialogue or conversation that also validates the decisions that the progressive pioneer feels as though he's making. Whereas when it comes to winning um, or serving a convenience conformer, those individuals are um, typically gravitate towards experiences that um, evidently simplify complicated moments in their lives. And they're not necessarily out for novelty like the progressive pioneers are. They're sort of okay with the no frills, very basic fundamental experience that works. So if they are able to be convinced that um, a digital assistant can make their lives or make a certain transaction faster, uh, more convenient, uh, you know, simpler, that is the emotional hook that will then um, draw convenience conformers into that particular experience. So sort of a lesson learned for the disruptor because disruptors come in the marketplace and they can leverage the progressive pioneers because they want to be in control, meaning they may want to shape the nature of the disruption itself. They're more co-creation at that point in time. Mm -hmm. And as it flows down, the disruptor sort of picks up people along the way when they can prove some convenient value to be had. I mean, they'll, they'll pick up the vast majority of customers. The reason I say this, I'm astounded by how fast disruption can occur and the fact that we're so used to that pace right now. We're used to things coming on the horizon, going from the idea to physically being in front of us and manifesting itself digitally, as you described it, and then quickly flowing into normal, whether that's Uber or Airbnb or any of the sharing economy sort of indicators. It's amazing how fast and how graceful that is. Yeah, and it's sort of what feeds into this concept of hyper-adoption, right? It's the idea that things that were very recently considered improbable are now very much a reality, and that will just continue. So the empowered customer segmentation essentially helps explain why that's the case, but also with understanding the nuance of how motivations and emotional drivers differ between segments, companies can ideally play to those uh, keys and um, draw customers into a particular experience or um, hasten the pace that an experience is um, adopted and, and is shared. So Anjali, in previous episodes, we've talked about emotion, the theory of emotion, the science of emotion, but it, it appears in this conversation that the data is showing us that they're, that consumers have a desire for that emotional engagement. But are we moving from sort of a desire to a full-on expectation? Yeah, I think that we have reached a point where the idea that emotion is critical to um, not just a successful customer experience, but also is fundamental to how and why consumers make decisions and, and um, exhibit certain behaviors, uh, that is no longer debatable, right? That That's sort of almost table stakes. That's really fundamental. Um, right now, the key is for um, business leaders to identify the nuance in how emotion drives their consumers' behaviors based on their customers' levels of empowerment. So um, that means not only identifying 
the core motivations that make their empowered customers distinct or that maybe they can sort of map or use to organize um, their customers and prospects, but also what are the key emotional levers to pull to trigger particular behavioral outcomes that draw customers into an experience and um, keep them coming back. But this is not just an interesting point, but an economic point. These more advanced segments have significant buying power, and they've sort of proven that they will buy. And on the flip side of that, they'll also prove that they will churn. Yeah, and uh, so two points, actually, that come to mind on that. So what's interesting and what is almost a little bit surprising that we found in the data when constructing the empowered customer segmentation is that, um, yes, the progressive pioneers, right, so the more, most empowered, most sophisticated group um, tends to be most affluent. They tend to have the greatest purchase power but they're actually followed by the convenience conformer. So the third most empowered group um, tends to have the second highest uh, purchase power um, after progressive pioneers. And again, it varies because income isn't a variable that is built into the segmentation. Um, it varies according to a particular customer group of a certain brand or according to the market. Um, but that tends to be the pattern that we see, um, which is sort of an interesting point because it shows that empowerment, right, in theory or in concept, isn't necessarily correlated to income or to affluence. Again, it's really a function of motivation or emotion. And the other thing I was going to mention is that um, what's important is uh, when applying this, this sort of framework and really kind of putting it into action is to um, have a company identify the relative profitability and risk of each individual segment. So Progressive pioneers, for instance, may be much easier to attract um, or to acquire because they are, as we've discussed already, driven by this um, interest and in, in need for, for novelty. Um, they're willing to experiment, but the flip side of that means that they're also harder to retain versus convenience conformers, um, because their behavior changes far more slowly, um, will be harder to acquire, but possibly easier to retain. Um, so that's sort of a business decision that then has to be weighted um, in the context of a company's customer base. Yeah, you can see, especially in the retail space, sort of the value or the impact it's having in terms of providing recommendation engines, simplifying the buying process, and as importantly, creating a very short window between I buy something and it's delivered to my door. I mean, that convenience factor must be stimulating that segment. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So in the second piece you said, Angelie, it was very interesting because you, you actually sort of hinted at something that we've explored in these podcasts, which is sort of individualization. At some point in time, I'm going to score Peter differently than Betty or Sue or Paul. This is sort of a form of math to get to individualization. Right, exactly. And it's um, a tool that often complements um, proprietary segmentations or behavioral uh, uh, segmentations based on behavior demographics that companies tend to use um, already. So um, this is essentially another lens of insight is sort of how you can think about it, right? To um, map your own customers or prospects according to level of empowerment, um, use the research to understand what that means about um, customers' appetite for innovation, potential to churn, um, you know, relative risk, um, and then exactly as you say, tag individuals in your own customer base to these segments um, and then come up with a list of priorities accordingly. And this feeds into this whole concept of predictive analytics. This segmentation is it's a natural predictor. It's a focus on motivations and expectations, sort of future actions based upon existing realities. I mean, this is sort of nested right into that prediction logic. Right. That's exactly right. And that's really the core reason um, why the segmentation is built purely on motivation and attitude is because that allows us to be 
predictive um, and, uh, and essentially anticipate how a customer will likely respond to a particular innovation and why that's the case. So we're asking business leaders to know their own data. Perhaps they have their own segmentation, layering on this empowered customer segmentation. Are brands ready for this work? Are marketers ready to go after the consumer at that individual level? Yeah, I think that um, they are absolutely ready for it. But even more than that, it's almost imperative now for brands to um, tune in to their customers' rising expectations and apply some sort of statistical you know, model to actually measure how that's changing today and how that will be likely to change in the future. Um, I think that the companies that develop that razor-sharp focus on uh, the core motivations that are driving customer empowerment are the ones that are going to be able to play to it and also get ahead of the curve, which is, as we've talked about already, um, critical to surviving in this uh, rapidly changing environment. So the the age of the customer sort of describes this dynamic where customers are able to reshape markets and change the way businesses have to work, going back to your word, imperative. And, and it's sort of providing sort of the actors in the play for this, this extraordinary drama taking place out in the marketplace. So if I'm a leader, what does it mean to me to sort of take all this in and start taking dip actions that are very different than I would have taken before, either because I didn't have the knowledge or I didn't see that affecting my business, whether it's on the upside or on, on churn? Yeah, that's a great metaphor of the, the characters in the play. Um, and I think that if the, I guess, marketer or, um, you know, the, really the business leader or the business decision maker sort of seems, sees himself or herself as the choreographer of this whole thing, um, I think that it means that uh, the business leader has to really break down his or her assumptions uh, around what customers will do based on their historical behavior, what they've done in the past. Um, also, have uh, more of sort of an experimental mindset and be nimble and ready to engage the most empowered customers um, and uh, glean, you know, collect feedback in order to make decisions. So it's very much embracing the whole customer-obsessed um, mindset. So at the end of the day, if you really think about this, um, even from a philosophical standpoint, this data and this research and the framework altogether um, is applied uh, in the consumer context, obviously, but um, it really is about fundamental shifts in human behavior, right? So this is um, addressing things like emotion and motivation and rising expectation that um, are the very things that really make us human. And companies really have to wrap themselves around this reality. Thanks, Anjali, for joining us. Yeah, thank you. This is great. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.